more that your immune system is fighting something unnecessarily, the more collateral damage there's going to be in your body, which leads to, again, that oxidative stress. And then we've talked a lot about how that oxidative stress leads to poor health. Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. The show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. We're Kristen Cornett and Dr. Haley Nye, your hosts and the creators of the online fertility platform, Tiny Feet. If you're here for the first time, then welcome. We are so glad to have you with us. At Tiny Feet, we use functional medicine and nutrition to help couples overcome fertility struggles, conceive successfully, and have beautiful, healthy babies. We offer individualized consults that include functional lab testing and targeted natural therapies, as well as an online fertility assessment and online courses. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help you on your fertility journey, we invite you to schedule a free 20-minute phone consult with us. You can find the link to schedule with us and learn more about what we offer on our website at tinyfeet.co. And speaking of online courses, we are actually putting the finishing touches on a course that will take you through everything you need to know to prepare for a healthy pregnancy. More details will be coming out about the course soon, so stay tuned to learn more. And we will be having an early bird release for the course with special pricing just for our email subscribers. So if you're not on our list yet, we highly encourage you to sign up so that you can be the first to hear about that early release. And you can get signed up for the list through the link in the podcast episode description. Okay, so just one more thing before we get started on today's episode. We'd like to give a shout out to one of our listeners who left us an awesome review on iTunes. Christina Howard 210 wrote, this is my favorite fertility podcast to listen to for so many reasons. Dr. Haley and Kristen address a variety of topics, invite interesting doctors and specialists to interview, and go in-depth about ways to improve your fertility besides running straight to IUI or IVF. You can tell they genuinely care about women's health and improving it. They also have an amazing website with blogs and different medical testing and services they offer. They've given me so much food for thought and encouragement through my fertility journey. I would recommend this podcast to any woman, but especially those trying to conceive. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for sharing your thoughts and appreciation with us. We are so happy that you're finding the podcast helpful and encouraging. For all of our listeners out there, please consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite listening app. It totally makes our day to hear from you, and it also helps boost the podcast so we can continue to empower couples with functional health and fertility knowledge. All right, so let's jump into today's episode. You're listening to episode 33, where we're going to be talking about food sensitivities and elimination diets. So you've probably heard a lot of different recommendations out there for which foods you should avoid when trying to conceive. And this week, we want to help you understand when you should consider making changes to your diet, which foods can commonly cause problems, and why, and the two different types of elimination diets that we most commonly use with our clients. So you're going to learn what food sensitivities are, how they happen, and why they're so problematic for fertility. You'll learn why gluten and dairy get such a bad rap and whether or not you should consider avoiding them. 
the basics of the Whole30 and AIP elimination diets and when we recommend these to certain clients, and also when it might be time to seek out additional testing for food sensitivities. All right, so let's start out by talking about what food sensitivities are and how they happen, and Dr. Haley is going to do that for us. Great. Thanks, Kristen, so much. Okay, so we have three different types of reactions to food. So it's really important to understand the difference. And so our immune system makes up uh, the reactions that we're referred to is caused by antibodies. Usually they're like the trigger for the immune response. And you probably have heard of antibodies, but there's different types of antibodies. Um, and one type that causes one of the food sensitivities or food reactions that we're going to talk about is IgE antibody. And this causes an, an immediate and often severe reaction to food. And so you, if you have one of these um, allergic reactions to food, you've definitely are aware of it. So this is um, something that is this is what's commonly known in the conventional um, medical community. And so when you go to a conventional doctor and they're getting allergy um, or offering allergy testing, this is the type of allergy testing that they're going to offer you. Um, so that's like when they, you know, do pricks on your skin and see if you actually have a reaction that's immediate on your skin, causing like a hive or a rash or swelling. And so these, uh, this type of reaction is pretty uh, dangerous for people because you need to have like an EpiPen on board, your tongue can swell up, you have a severe asthma attack, that, um, and you can end up in the hospital or even die from these kind of reactions. So the other type of reaction that we have to food is the one that we're going to be going into today is what's called a food sensitivity. And this is not caused by IgE antibodies, but it's actually caused by IgG most commonly, and sometimes IgM antibodies. So they're different types of antibodies created by our immune cells or our white blood cells. Um, and this can cause often um, an immediate response or a delayed response, and it can manifest in a variety of ways in your body. So some of the ways that you might experience a food sensitivity is through digestive problems. So like acid reflux, surprisingly, is often a food sensitivity. Um, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea is really common, and abdominal cramping. Also, you can have skin reactions, uh, again, really common. You can have rashes, hives, eczema. So if you had eczema as a child, oftentimes that was some type of food sensitivity that was going on. Um, rosacea, which is like redness on your um, face specifically, and then acne. Also, asthma, seasonal allergies, or chronic sinus problems. So post-nasal drip, congestion, um, if you're constantly feeling like you're, you know, your nose is sniffly or your eyes are itchy, um, or you, chronic, you constantly get these sinus problems that could be connected to some type of food that you're eating that your body is um, sensitive to. Some other... Um, Symptoms include joint muscle or nerve pain, headaches or migraines, mental health issues. So 
things like depression, anxiety, or even PMS can be connected to a food sensitivity. And we're going to go into a little bit more on why that is. So that surprises a lot of people. They don't understand that the, the food that they're eating or one particular food that they're eating is actually connected to how they're feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. And then hormone imbalances like estrogen is too high compared to progesterone. So um, you're, you're not necessarily processing your estrogen well, and it's causing this abnormal relationship between the two of them. And that can definitely mess with your periods. And then, of course, that can lead to unexplained infertility for a variety of reasons. So that is a food sensitivity as compared to what a food allergy is. And then the third type of reaction you can have to food is a food intolerance. And so this has nothing to do with antibodies, actually. It's just usually has to do with um, your digest, your inability to digest a particular type of food, which can lead to unpleasant digestive and inflammatory symptoms. So a really common example is lactose intolerant, meaning that you don't have that lactase enzyme. So huge portion of the um, population does not have lactase to break down um, the lactose sugar, and then it causes a lot of issues such as gas and diarrhea and things like that. So that's why people can actually take um, an enzyme to help break down that food. It's pretty easy to, um, to be able to, you know, re get relief from food intolerances with like digestive enzymes. So um, how do food sensitivities start? So they really do start with some type of gut dysfunction. So there has to be uh, damage to the lining of our intestines. So remember that the lining of our intestines is actually like a big tube that goes through us and it's exposed to the outside world. Um, and the lining of our intestine is the only thing that's keeping um, us, you know, separate the inside of our body, separate from the outside world. And so it's really important that we have a nice, um, healthy integrity of that lining. And so, um, now the lining is selectively permeable and is only supposed to allow uh, fully digestive nutrients through. So again, it's going to be very, um, selective to, what exact nutrients that we're going to be absorbing and which ones are going to go on through past the small intestine and into the large intestine. So when we have poor digestive function, so one example is like low stomach acid, or if we're taking medications like the birth control pill, or if we're exposed to toxins, pathogens, so bacterial um, exposure, say you go traveling and you get um, exposed, exposed to um, like a food, food poisoning or something like that. And then chronic stress. So all those can lead to damage to the gut barrier and it can cause what's called holes, right? So um, it's causing kind of a, a, a sieve <laughs> to where things can get through. So larger food uh, mole molecules, bacteria and toxins are then not necessarily allowed it to pass through um, the intestinal wall, they sneak through the intestinal wall and then they can get into the bloodstream 
or run into um, basically our, our immune army that's sitting right there on the other side of the intestinal wall. And that army is going to respond to these as foreign invaders. And so if they feel like they're foreign invaders, then they're going to produce antibodies to them. And that's where that IgG and that IgM comes into play. So what do antibodies do? So antibodies are going to cause inflammatory reactions in our body. So that's all those symptoms that I just listed out earlier. Those are, that's actually an inflammatory reaction that your immune system is, is causing because it feels like it's under attack. It feels like um, there's something that's attacking your body and then it's reacting to that. So um, why do food sensitivities matter for fertility? Why are we talking about this, Dr. Ailey? Um, so the uh, inflammatory response to food sensitivities can lead to poor detoxification. So your body just feels overloaded, especially your liver. Um, also oxidative stress. So the more, more that your immune system is fighting something unnecessarily, the more collateral damage there's going to be in your body, which leads to, again, that oxidative stress. And then we've talked a lot about how that oxidative stress leads to poor health and, and sperm quality. So both men and women um, can have fertility issues when they're dealing with food sensitivities. And then it also leads to elevated cortisol um, because of the chronic um, physical stress that your body's under. It's going to release more cortisol from your adrenal glands. And then uh, this can also lead to excess estrogen and low progesterone, which we talked about just about previously, leading to cycle irregularities, a short luteal phase, poor quality um, in the uterine lining. So affecting implantation, infertility, and then also miscarriage. So it's something that's just not talked about often, but that can definitely be a cause. Um, it also leads to elevated insulin. So hopefully you've been listening to past episodes and you know how passionate we are about making sure that you have good blood sugar control. But when you have chronic food sensitivities, it can lead to an elevated insulin response, which can lead to excess androgens like testosterone and DHEA. And that can disrupt ovulation and of course, egg and sperm quality as well. It also can lead to fertilization and implantation issues, and then increase your risk of pregnancy complications and metabolic issues for babies. So that is no small thing <laughs> that we, we definitely need to pay attention to that. And then lastly, food sensitivities, because there's that um, permeability in the gut lining and um, the autoimmune re or the response that we're having to foreign or to those food particles, it can lead to autoimmune conditions. So Hashimoto's, which is um, autoimmune autoimmune thyroiditis is a really common autoimmune condition that um, affects one in 10 women and that increases infertility and miscarriage. And so we have talked about that previously. So Kirsten now is going to talk to us more about specific types of foods that I'm sure you've heard about that we um, have been told over and over again to put, uh, you know, remove from our diet, but maybe you are not really sure why. <laughs> 
Yeah, thanks, Dr. Haley. So the first one that we're going to talk about is gluten. It's very common to see a gluten-free diet recommended for fertility and pregnancy. And we just want to explain a little bit more to you about why that may actually be a really reasonable suggestion. I think there are a lot of doctors and nutritionists that are kind of skeptical about a gluten-free diet for this because there isn't a whole lot of scientific research that specifically shows fertility improvement on a gluten-free diet, but we have a lot of mechanisms that show what gluten does in the body, and we have a lot of biological basis and some common sense as well um, to kind of tell us why that would be problematic for fertility. And um, so one of the major ones is autoimmunity, which is something that Dr. Haley just mentioned. And, you know, autoimmune conditions are interesting in the way that food um, can sort of trigger those. When you're when your immune system forms antibodies to a particular food, it's forming an antibody to a specific protein sequence that it recognizes in those foods. And what can happen is that you can have similar protein sequences in the tissues in your body. And so when your immune system forms antibodies to that protein complex in a particular food, you can also get antibodies that also mistakenly recognize proteins in your tissues. And that's kind of how we can get like, you know, that's why gluten and thyroid disease kind of tend to go hand in hand as, you know, a problem and why we often recommend gluten-free and why many practitioners recommend gluten-free, especially if there's um, Hashimoto's or thyroid disease going on. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about what's the deal with gluten, because there's a lot of things going on here. It's not just its ability to cause or contribute to Hashimoto's. So what is gluten? Gluten is actually a protein complex that's found in certain types of grains, so primarily wheat, barley, rye, and triticale. And the, that gluten complex is made up primarily of glutenin and gliadin. And gliadin is the, the protein or the peptide chain that we're most concerned about when it comes to gluten. So many people, as I mentioned, kind of think gluten-free is a fad, um, but there is quite a bit of science behind why it's problematic. And some people are even more susceptible to having an issue with gluten. And that depends a lot on genetics, um, especially those governing the formation of autoantibodies. There are certain genes that predispose us to autoimmunity, certain genes that affect how well we repair our gut lining. Um, and so gut barrier dysfunction is a major um, cause and contributor to food sensitivities as well as autoimmunity. Well, you also have something that runs in your family, right? The HLA B27 gene. Is that what, kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, so there are actually several HLA genes that can increase the risk for several different types of autoimmune conditions. So, you know, things like ankylosing spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease is another one associated with HLAs. Um, uh, Hashimoto's actually may be associated with an HLA gene as well. So there are several. Yeah. Yeah, I know that um, the HLA B27 is something that's running uh, that runs in your family. And so just for the listeners out there, if you also have something similar, like um, a family diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis or some other autoimmune condition, then it's something to consider of getting your HLA, um, which is basically a type of immune complex or like your unique marker of how your um, immune system decides to react. To things and so certain HLA complexes will react more than others. 
And so you, that does kind of mean that you do need to be a little bit more careful with your diet and, you know, a family history of autoimmune disease, which I have very significantly, especially on my dad's side of the family. Um, you know, his sister, my aunt has multiple autoimmune conditions. He has multiple autoimmune conditions. Um, I have a diagnosed autoimmune condition and some symptoms that are consistent with a few others as well. So um, kind of scary situation. Um, and gluten is definitely a contributing factor in that autoimmunity. And so all of us, tend to be really careful with that in our diet. So celiac disease is what most people think of when they think of an issue with gluten. They think of, of this autoimmune condition. Um, but that's not the only way that people can be sensitive or reactive to gluten. So celiac is actually triggered by gluten. It leads to an, the immune system to basically attack a specific type of protein that's produced in the gut lining. And that causes damage to the little... Um, villi or the projections that increase the surface area of your gut and absorb nutrients. And so people with celiac disease tend to have problems with malabsorption. They end up nutrient deficient, which can cause a lot of systemic symptoms. And they often, but not always, um, have digestive symptoms as well. So now let's talk about gluten sensitivity aside from celiac disease. So it is completely possible to have that sensitivity and even produce antibodies to gluten without developing celiac disease. So some of the reasons that we, um, that gluten is such a problematic food and that we do tend to produce antibodies to it is that modern wheat is really heavily hybridized. So we've taken multiple different strains of wheat and we've tried to make it more weather resistant. Um, if you actually look at today's wheat compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago. My mom actually grew up in an agricultural re uh, region and she has sort of seen the progression of what wheat used to look like, you know, these four foot tall stalks to this now like dwarf wheat that we have that grows quicker, it matures quicker, it's quicker to harvest, um, and it has built in resistance from this hybridization to different pests and it's more tolerant of, you know, fertilizers and things that we put on it. And so that makes it easier for food production. But what happens when we hybridize like that is that wheat can actually form new proteins that actually didn't exist in either of the two plants that was used to create a hybrid strain. And so we kind of have this wheat that's not really recognizable to the original wild growing grain that we used to recognize as wheat. And so these, these kind of foreign proteins are more difficult for us to digest. Wheat is already by itself more difficult for us to digest because our human digestive enzymes just don't do very well with the type of um, lectins or we call it in, in wheat, they're prolamins. We just don't digest those very well. And so those um, lacking those digestive enzymes, we don't do a good job of fully breaking down these foods. And basically what that does is that causes these more intact proteins to interact really strongly with the gut lining. Um, so we can end up with an increase in that intestinal permeability. Um, gluten specifically or gliadin specifically increases something called zonulin in the gut. And zonulin, what it does is it unravels the tight junctions between cells in the gut lining. So if you think of, you know, like little gates in a fence, and basically what that uh, zonulin is doing is it's opening up the gate in the fence and allowing something in that shouldn't be allowed in. Um, so when that increase in intestinal permeability happens, that can increase the body's response to specific foods. So it could be reacting and forming antibodies specifically to gluten, or that gluten could be allowing other foods in that you're then forming antibodies to. 
So um, gluten can also cause dysbiosis in the gut uh, by disproportionately feeding the wrong types of bacteria. So when we have foods like gluten that are harder for us to digest, what's left of that um, protein and the sugar and everything that's part of that food actually feeds bacteria in the gut as it goes through undigested. And that can definitely cause us to basically have fewer of the beneficial bugs that we want and more of the kind of harmful or more pathogenic bacteria that we don't want. And that can cause problems in the gut as well. Also, another important thing to note about gluten, and I've seen a lot of articles about this recently, is, oh, is it the gluten or is it the glyphosate? You know, lots of articles that are kind of saying, well, it's more what we spray on wheat or, you know, the environmental treatment of that grain that makes it harmful to us. It's not that we're inherently reacting to gluten, but we're actually reacting to glyphosate. So glyphosate, for those of you who don't know, if you haven't heard all the controversy around that recently, glyphosate is the active ingredient in uh, the pesticide Roundup. And although this isn't as heavily used in the actual growing process for wheat, it's actually sprayed on it toward harvest as a desiccant. So it dries out that grain faster for harvest. And that's really, really, really common, even though it's not sprayed on it often um, throughout the growing season. But glyphosate is very toxic. I'm sure um, some of you have heard about the lawsuits now linking it to cancer. But it's basically like an antibiotic in the gut. It kills off beneficial gut bacteria, so it destroys those beneficial bugs, and it allows for then all that undigested gluten and other foods that are going through the gut to feed the wrong types of bacteria. So I was going to mention something about, because I keep thinking like, well, why can we go to Europe, you know, overseas and eat wheat and not have the same symptoms? So I know a lot of people have experienced the same thing, but I, when I, when I went to Europe, um, a couple or a few years ago now, I was able to eat wheat, um, you know, in Italy, you definitely want to have a pizza here and there. And so, um, and the pasta, but I think you hit on some really good points of why that might be is because they just, they're probably not hybridizing as much as we have in our agriculture for the same, you know, they have different ways of, of doing that and probably just not using our same uh, aggressive techniques <laughs> in our agriculture. And then also they're not using Roundup, right? I mean, that could be a big piece of it. Yeah, it depends. Um, I don't. I don't think it's. It's definitely not used as widely there as it is in the U.S. I don't know exactly mm -hmm. what the what the rules are about what's banned. Um, I know a lot of GMOs aren't allowed. Um, right. So you know things like corn, which would be heavily sprayed with glyphosate. Yeah, I don't know about the treatment of wheat, but I I do know that um, they run a little bit tighter of a ship <laughs> over oh, there yeah. in terms of what they allow the public <laughs> to be exposed to. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've, I've heard that a lot. Um, I haven't personally experienced the ability to travel, um, overseas and, and eat things that I couldn't normally eat at home. But I, I think there's a lot of factors at play. So one could definitely be food quality, lack of certain chemicals that are sprayed on there. Another one is definitely stress though, because yeah, you know, when you're on true. vacation, you're not as stressed and stress does increase gut permeability and kind of reduce your resistance to environmental assaults, which may come from food or from other things. So I think that's interesting. I definitely have heard a lot of people mention that. We don't really know exactly what the deal is with that. I, I 
don't know if it's because the quality of the wheat is so much better. In some places, you know, you are, are getting a little bit more of a traditional treatment of that grain as well. So like making a traditionally fermented sourdough. In the U.S., we make we make a loaf of bread in like two to four hours and it should take at least a couple of days if you're really preparing that grain properly and you're actually allowing it to like rise and ferment because that process breaks down some of the proteins that are more difficult to digest. So there's a lot of confounding factors there, but that's a really interesting point to bring up. Yeah. And I'm sure that some people listening have experienced that. Oh, so yeah. the answer is that we don't know for sure, but there are a bunch of things that could be at play in your ability to digest gluten a little better in Italy than you can here in the U.S. <laughs> Us. But you know, it's really interesting. I actually have an NTP friend who lives in Italy and they have an extraordinarily high rate of celiac disease in Italy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So maybe it's more about stress Yeah. <laughs> when we go on vacation. Lots to research there. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the main issue with gluten is that it really has a special ability more than almost any other food that we've studied to have a negative impact on gut health. And so that's really the reason that it's so heavily recommended to be avoided, especially in certain situations. And then testing for gluten sensitivity is kind of tricky. So gliadin, which is the, the main component, the main protein complex that we're concerned about, breaks into like 20 or something different fragments. And a lot of times when we test for antibodies, we only test for antibodies to like one of those fragments, like the alpha gliadin. And uh, so that's not necessarily a complete complete test. You could test negative for gluten sensitivity with that test, um, but still be gluten sensitive. So the best test to really assess for gluten sensitivity and really look at antibodies to multiple fragments that could be causing gluten sensitivity is Cyrex Labs, but it's a pricey test. I mean, if you really need the proof on paper that you're gluten sensitive, that's probably the lab that we would recommend. But in my opinion, Dr. Haley, you can share yours here in a minute if you have a different one. But in my opinion, the best way to determine whether gluten sensitivity is a problem for you is to eliminate it from your diet. I would say a minimum of 30 days um, with really ideally 90 days being a good elimination timeframe um, and see how you feel. And when I say eliminate it, I mean really eliminate it. There's no such thing as mostly gluten-free. If you're sitting in the boat right now where you're like, oh, well, I only have a little bit or I only have a bite of this or a bite of that every now and then. Unfortunately, gluten is one of those foods that just has a really strong ability to stimulate the immune system. It can take a long time to clear antibodies that you create to gluten from your system. So there is no such thing as mostly gluten-free. And the best way to really know if it causes a problem for you is to eliminate it and see if you feel better. And if you do, it's probably not a food that you should be consuming in your diet. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you, Kristen. I would say the only thing I'd like to add is if you're, if you have a suspicion that you might have celiac disease, it is good to go through the testing to see if you have um, celiac, which I believe the gold standard still, <clears throat> excuse me, still is a small intestinal biopsy. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason why is because when you're diagnosed as celiac, there's a lot of other health concerns that you need to address. Um, you know, bone health is, is one of them because if you've had, if you've had celiac, we don't know when you first developed it and you could have been losing, um, you could have been losing bone, um, help me Kristen with a density. Thank you. <laughs> bone density over time. <laughs> 
you could have been losing bone density over time and it's recommended to get a DEXA scan, which is going to right. get a baseline on that. And um, so that's just one example of when you have actual celiac disease that um, there's other health concerns that you want to make sure to address. Um, and I see this all the time is that people eliminate gluten, they feel so much better and they don't want to go back to eating gluten because you can't to find out if they're sensitive. Exactly. Yeah. You can't get tested if you're not actively eating gluten. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I completely agree with that. If you have any suspicion or concern that you have celiac disease and you're not yet eating a gluten-free diet, I would go through the process of getting tested for celiac. Yeah, completely agree with that. And so I didn't do that. I started on a gluten-free diet without being properly tested for celiac. And so I don't know. I mean, it does run in my family. It is a possibility that that's an issue for me. Um, but I guess at this point, we'll never know. The other thing about celiac is that just going on a gluten-free diet um, in many cases doesn't fully heal the damage that's been done to the small intestine. And so knowing whether right. or not you do have celiac disease can help can help kind of guide a treatment plan for you um, that's specifically focused on healing the gut because you know it, it does take a long time to heal the kind of damage that's done. And, and right. people who have celiac disease, which is autoimmune, there are other concerns and nutrient deficiencies and things that we would need to manage to kind of get your body into a place where you actually can heal that tissue normally things like right. vitamin D and, you know, making sure that you have enough iron and B vitamin deficiencies and things that can really affect your health long-term. Well, yeah. And some of those autoimmune antibodies that is created by celiac disease cross react with a lot of other foods as well, unfortunately. And We're so, talk about that <laughs> so Cyrex labs has a, a test to help with cross reactivity too. So just one other reason why it's, it's smart to know for sure, if you have autoimmune antibodies creating celiac disease. Yeah, definitely. So when do we recommend going gluten-free? So we talked earlier, Dr. Haley mentioned kind of all of these inflammatory symptoms um, and digestive symptoms that are associated with food sensitivities. And, you know, if you're experiencing those on a regular basis, any of them really, um, it's a good idea to try out a gluten-free diet. And we would generally recommend that to clients, especially those that are struggling with digestive issues because of the damage to the gut lining, because of the increase in the incidence of dysbiosis with gluten-containing grains, um, any autoimmune condition, either suspected or diagnosed. Um, we also frequently recommend it for endometriosis as well as for unexplained infertility. And definitely for unexplained infertility, you would want to make sure that you're properly evaluated for celiac disease before trying a gluten-free diet. Yeah. Anything else you want to add about gluten before we move on to dairy? Hmm. No, I think you covered it all. Other than the fact that there is, like I said, you know, eliminating it means eliminating it completely. And, right. you know, like I said, having a bite of something here or there, you're, there's no such thing as mostly gluten-free. But the other thing to be aware of is that you really have to label read and you have to be aware of what right. things gluten is added to. Like we found gluten in canned chicken that we were buying from Costco once. Like I, I think I first started uh, a gluten-free diet just to experiment with it, totally not believing that it would help me at all, but I was desperate. So I started this in um, like the summer of 2013. And just so everybody's aware, it took me two weeks to start feeling any difference at all in my health. Mm -hmm. And it took me three months to really 
realize how much I had been helped by going gluten-free, but I had to get really diligent about label reading because any processed or packaged food that you're eating, it could be hiding in there. So, you know, look for things like, you know, certified gluten-free, look for it to be labeled gluten-free. There are a lot of different names on food labels that could potentially contain gluten, like modified food starch. There's nothing in those words that would make you immediately think gluten, but it's entirely possible that that food contains gluten. And if it does, it's not labeled gluten-free and you don't really know what's in modified food starch, short of calling the company, there's not really a good way for you to figure out whether or not that food is truly gluten-free or not. And that could feel overwhelming a little bit for people. And so I think just knowing some good resources such as, you know, I'll just give a little shout out for a thrive market.com. <laughs> They're great because you can go on there and, um, click and you can, um, there's a filter where you can just say, show me all your gluten-free foods and they've done all the work for you. I mean, they'll, they'll, post everything that you can purchase that you can feel comfortable knowing that they're gluten-free at that point, especially if you live in an area where it's hard to come by a gluten-free products. Um, that could be a good option for you. Definitely. And they're totally worth it. It's basically like a, like an online Costco membership for healthy yeah. food. And so totally. I think you, I think it's like a $30, $29.95 a year or something. And so you pay mm-hmm. a membership fee, but you get um, discounted like prices on pretty much all different kinds of pantry staples, spices, snacks. They now have like cleaning products and personal care products. There's a lot of cool stuff on there. So Thrive's great. We love Thrive. Um, One other thing that I want to mention about gluten-free and one of the criticisms that a gluten-free diet gets a lot is that, oh, you know, you're going to be causing nutrient deficiencies by telling people to go gluten-free. And I really want to address this topic because that's crap. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it right now. Like if you're, if you're really properly eating a gluten-free diet, like, yes, you could, you could be causing problems if you're going from a a gluten containing processed food diet to a non-gluten containing processed food diet, because a lot of the gluten-free flours, they're not mandated to be fortified with certain nutrients. And so if the only place that you're currently getting, you know, synthetic folic acid and cyanocobalamin B12 is from the pasta that you're eating for dinner every night, that's a problem. And that's something that we obviously address talking about diet, talking about proper supplementation. We address that um, in other areas of our business. You know, we have a free course on prenatal supplements and we're developing our course on preconception preparation that's going to contain, you know, a whole lot of advice about really how to eat a nutrient dense diet, whether it includes gluten for you or not, but there's nothing inherently nutrient deficient about a gluten-free diet. Gluten is not a nutrient dense food, you know, grains, they do have some beneficial nutrition and some fiber, but you can actually get way more nutrition and way more fiber from non-starchy vegetables. So what we're saying is, you know, if you're going to eat a gluten-free diet, make sure that you're eating a nutrient-dense diet that includes plenty of fruits and vegetables, quality proteins, healthy fats. Don't just go to eating processed gluten-free foods. Yeah. So um, I have a question that's bouncing around in my brain from what you said earlier of like why you have to go 100% gluten-free. Um, And so I just wanted to give a little bit more context on that for the listeners. So when you are exposed, we'll say to gluten, let's say um, by modified food starch that Kristen was talking about. (laughs) In canned uh, chicken. Exactly. Um, And this doesn't happen in everybody, but a, a good chunk of people, especially if you're doing an elimination diet and you truly want to know how you feel without gluten, um, when you get exposed to just a few proteins of gluten, 
your immune system is totally on the lookout. So when you've been eating a bunch of gluten, it's built up a huge army against that gluten protein, hence is why you have a lot of symptoms. And it takes a while for that army to kind of be like, well, I guess the gluten's all gone. I guess we can go, I'll go home now. Um, but <laughs> if you're, if you're going to expose to just even a few particles, there's still, that army is still going to be there on the other side of your, the lining of your small intestine. And you know, they have binoculars and they see that little gluten protein and they're going to shout out in the uh, microphone to all the other, um, you know, army and say, Hey guys, look, I found one. It's in the corner. It's right here. And boom, you're going to have a huge inflammatory response again. So that's why you need to be a hundred percent gluten-free is so that army will go home. So it's not just sitting there waiting, you know, and still continuing to cause problems for you. And this isn't, you know, with a lot of other, we're going to talk a little bit later about elimination diets, but this is not generally a food that I recommend reintroductions for. Um, so if you find that you're gluten sensitive and you feel better without it, it's not typically a food I would recommend like eliminating for three or six months and waiting until you don't react to it anymore and then starting to eat it again. I just think that with the, if you, if you've already proven that you're susceptible to that sensitivity, we have so many things in our modern life that damage our gut lining. We don't need to be doing that with our diet. You know, we don't need to be increasing intestinal permeability with a food that's not particularly nutrient dense and has a lot of other health concerns associated with it. So if you found that you are gluten sensitive and that you feel significantly better without it, I don't typically recommend and adding it back into your diet at any point. Now, the next one that we're going to talk about is dairy. And I don't feel as strongly about dairy because I believe that dairy does have some good nutritional value to it. You know, it's a great source of complete protein. It contains, you know, good, healthy, fat-soluble vitamins. It's actually been found full fat dairy products have been found to be supportive of fertility in multiple studies. When they're great um, uh, probiotics or fermented... Yeah. Yeah. Fermented dairy can be a, a healthy source of probiotics, but there are some concerns with consuming dairy, especially for certain people. So let's talk about what the deal is with a dairy-free diet, why we should consider it. And the first reason is that dairy is commonly cross-reactive with gluten. So the antibodies that we can form to gluten can also recognize dairy proteins causing a similar inflammatory response. Now there are other foods that can also be cross-reactive with gluten, and we'll talk about those a little a bit later. But um, basically what that means is that if you're gluten sensitive, you are also frequently reactive to dairy. And so when you see people say go gluten-free and dairy-free, there's a reason that they get recommended together. Um, and so we, we already kind of talked about lactose intolerance earlier, but lactose is just kind of generally not well tolerated by adults. There's only a smaller percentage of the population that still makes enough of that lactase enzyme in our bodies to properly break down lactose. And that can cause a lot of digestive distress, usually diarrhea, um, <laughs> flatulence, gas. <laughs> gas. Yeah. Matt's lactose intolerant and he seems to be in denial sometimes. And so I did not know that Matt was <laughs> lactose intolerant. Then again, I've never uh, seen or experienced him eating dairy. So good on me. So dairy products are also generally difficult to digest. Um, they actually do have protease inhibitors in them. So um, digestive enzyme inhibitors that prevent protein digestion. So that can contribute to gut dysbiosis. It can contribute to uh, damage to the gut lining. 
also the whey and the lactose in dairy can promote insulin release in the body. And I think that this might actually be one of the reasons that it's so heavily associated with acne in some women. Mm -hmm. So, um, one of the, that's one of those foods that when somebody comes to us and says they have acne, you know, dairy's on the chopping block. That's one of the first foods that we recommend at least trialing an elimination with to see if the acne gets better. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that I've read a whole bunch of studies on this, but the mechanism between insulin and insulin's ability to increase testosterone production Mm -hmm. in the ovaries, I think is likely a big part of the reason that that, that acne and dairy kind of go hand in hand in some women. Um, another thing to note about dairy is that depending on the type you're consuming, um, dairy can be really high in histamine, especially with like aged cheeses and, you know, fermented dairy products like yogurt or kefir or sour cream, something like that, um, can contain a lot of histamine and histamine and estrogen have a really interesting relationship and um, histamine also can kind of fill your histamine bucket. And that's kind of going to be associated with allergic type reactions, you know, those respiratory symptoms, post nasal drip, sinus issues. So if you already have a lot, yeah, asthma. mm -hmm. So if you already have a lot going on in your gut and your histamine bucket is kind of full, adding dairy on top of that can cause a lot of symptoms. And so personal story again, um, I had terrible seasonal allergies for my entire life. I could absolutely not function unless I had eye drops, nasal spray, and oral allergy medication every single day every allergy season, it was absolutely miserable. And, um, you know, going gluten-free helped a lot of things, but it did not help my allergies, but my seasonal allergies disappeared completely. Zero allergy medication after Mm -hmm. going dairy-free. So that was a big, I think it was, well, and cheese was like crack to me. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure so many people can relate. They're like, don't take my cheese. Yeah. I get it. I get it. It took me, it took me a couple years to come to, um, just come to the fact that I have to quit dairy too. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a tough one. Um, cow dairy and the a one beta casein, which is one of the main proteins in dairy, particularly cow dairy or the, the species of cow that most of our milk comes from. It's very high in that a one beta casein. And, um, it's just a highly sensitive protein for people. Like we tend to be highly reactive to it. Cow dairy is actually one of the most common allergenic foods. I think it's one of the, what the top was the eight, top eight allergens. Mm-hmm. Probably couldn't name all those off the top of my head. It would be like peanuts, <laughs> soy, eggs, fish, shellfish, those, those types oh, of things. Wheat, wheat is on there as well. Corn. Yeah. So cow dairy is one of those commonly allergenic foods. Most of us aren't getting, you know, A2 milk or organic milk from our local farmer or raw milk. Um, There's a lot of controversy about raw milk. If you really want to know more about that, I highly recommend Real Food for Pregnancy by Lily Nichols. She kind of talks about why it's pretty overblown um, to be super concerned about raw milk, especially if it's coming from a reputable local source um, that's, you know, just very safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, conventional dairy products also contain hormones and antibiotic residue from what's given to those cows. Um, we just do that in food production. 
we, the, the point of that, the hormones are basically to like help them grow faster and produce more. And, you know, that's the whole point in modern food production is to get more faster. Uh, but that does lead to consequences in quality and it can affect the way that we react to those foods and the way that our body processes those foods. So those are kind of the big hitters with dairy is the cross reactivity with other food sensitivities, commonly allergenic, insulinogenic. So increasing insulin in the body with the lactose and the whey. Um, and just generally not being as well tolerated by a lot of people. So typically when we recommend going gluten-free, we also recommend going dairy-free, at least on a trial basis. Um, like I said, I don't typically recommend reintroducing gluten if you feel a lot better without it. Dairy, I think once you've done some really good gut healing, you can try it. I usually yeah. recommend doing full fat raw, like as close to how it comes out of the cow <laughs> as possible. <laughs> The other thing about raw dairy is that, you know, people get all concerned about the bacterial content. Like I mentioned, it's a, it's a controversial food, especially for fertility mm -hmm. and pregnancy, but um, it's actually not, it, it contains a lot of beneficial like probiotic bacteria when it's not pasteurized. And those things actually help fight pathogenic bacteria. So like if pasteurized milk gets bacterial exposure during packaging, that bacteria is going to proliferate in that milk. Now, if there's a little bit of bacteria that gets into raw milk, there's actually all these beautiful enzymes and probiotic beneficial bacteria that can actually help fight off that pathogen. Um, there's also enzymes in milk that can help you digest it. So the fact that people don't produce lactase, you can actually hmm. get some lactase in the milk that you're getting yeah. um, when it's raw. And um, heat denatures proteins and enzymes. And so you don't get those in a pasteurized product. So if you're going to reintroduce dairy, if you feel better without it, but you really want to try to add it back into the diet, I would recommend, you know, full fat raw, if it's available to you, if you can even get your hands on it um, in your state from a reputable safe source. Like raw cheeses that you could start with might be a good, good option. Yeah. And they do, I th some places will sell raw cheddar just because it's more of, I guess, more processed quote process <laughs> in the sense that in the sense that it's fermented basically. So you're not getting, uh, you're not getting as much potential, um, bacteria exposure. But like I said, I know this is a controversial topic. If you really want all of the statistics <laughs> on raw milk, um, you know, we're, we're not tr trying to tell you to do anything unsafe. So highly recommend Lily Nichols book, real food for pregnancy. Well, and what we're really talking safety. about is eliminating the dairy for, you know, four weeks, would you say four weeks, Kristen, or would you I would say longer? Same as I would do it. I would do it as long as you're eliminating gluten, which would be a minimum of 30 days, um, yeah. you know, with, with a goal of 90 days, depending on how reactive you were to start with. So if you have a lot of inflammatory symptoms from that initial list that we talked about in terms of food sensitivities, I would recommend going longer on the elimination, giving your immune system a break, giving your gut a chance to heal. People who are highly food sensitive um, also take longer to heal their guts typically because they're yeah. uh, short on resources that they need to do that. And so it can take, you know, yeah. three months or so for you to get better enough to reintroduce. Speaking of resources, um, at the end of this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the elimination diets that we use with our patients and clients. Yes. But first, Kristen is going to talk about some other foods that can be problematic for some people. So we've talked about gluten and dairy, which are the most common, which I'm sure you've heard about. <laughs> but here are some other foods that you may have not heard about or considered. Yeah. So gluten-free grains, um, those are another category, certain grains, um, 
that don't contain gluten can be cross-reactive with gluten. So like we said, the same antibodies that we're forming to gluten can also recognize proteins in other grains. Um, grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds also all contain digestive enzyme inhibitors. So things that make it harder for our human digestive enzymes to fully break them down into their component proteins. Um, and so kind of that undigested mass can feed dysbiosis and irritate the gut lining. So, um, you know, people who have a lot of digestive symptoms tend to suffer a little bit more with these foods. Um, these foods also contain phytic acid um, and some plant lectins that we talked about, like prolamins and agglutinins. Now, there are certain ways that you can prepare these foods to make them easier to digest. And so our typical recommendation before eliminating these foods, what you could do is try to soak and sprout them. So soaking in water overnight, there's a lot of great instructions for how to do this online. We will also be including soaking and sprouting uh, suggestions and instructions in our course that we have coming out soon. So we really cover diet in depth in that course, but um, grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds can be soaked and sprouted. So when we say sprout, what we're basically saying is you're germinating the seed. And when yeah. you do that, it, it breaks down those protective mechanisms that make them hard to digest. Because if you think about it, like a seed, it, the, the purpose of a seed is to germinate into a new plant. And seeds don't want to be consumed by animals, aka us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they do, they have protective mechanisms to keep them from being broken down in the digestive tract because theoretically, you know, we could just eat seeds and then they come out the other end and then they still germinate into new plants <laughs> without, being, um, without being digested by us. And so um, when you soak and sprout, you start to break down some of those protective mechanisms in the seeds and it makes them easier to digest. It also increases the nutrient content especially in legumes, like the folate content of sprouted um, lentils, for instance, is like four times the amount of just regular dried cooking, regular dried lentils. Mm -hmm. So something to consider. So better nutrient content, better digestion, changes the taste a little bit too. I personally think like nuts and seeds that are sprouted have a little bit of like sweetness to them. Mm -hmm. It's like not necessarily the exact flavor that you're used to, but I think it can be really, really beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do taste good. Yeah. Um, also, uh, sugar. <laughs> I don't know how many more times we can oh, talk about sugar. sugar. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we address it every single uh, every single episode on the podcast. But just as a reminder, sugar is an inflammatory food. It's not healthy. It spikes our insulin. It leads to insulin resistance. That leads to hormone imbalances, increases in testosterone, metabolic issues, weight gain, other think, hormone imbalances. Yeah. The reason why we're bringing it up is because people, people can be very sensitive to sugar. It can yes. cause an inflammatory response because of the immune system. And so we wanted to make sure that it's listed under these other foods that people can you know, respond to. Yeah. Refined sugar is not good for the gut. Um, it feeds dysbiosis and it reduces um, bacterial diversity in the gut. And so that can all compromise the gut lining and the, the mucosal barrier that protects that gut lining. So um, sugar is definitely one of those foods that can be highly inflammatory. And that is why it is listed as problematic. Um, not necessarily pr problematic for some people, but probably problematic for all people depending on the quantity. So some people can handle a little bit more in their diet, um, preferably natural sugars, not like refined sugar or high fructose corn syrup. Um, another category of foods would be nightshade vegetables. 
And this one's kind of interesting. These, these, these don't affect all people. This isn't um, as common of a sensitivity, but this includes tomatoes, um, bell peppers, and hot peppers, eggplant, potatoes, tomatillos, paprika. Um, there's like certain types of berries that are actually nightshades as well. It's like, it's like goji berries and um, it's like a particular type of huckleberry or something that's a, that's a nightshade, not the regular ones that you would buy. So um, nightshades are interesting. So they produce, actually most of the nightshade family, there's only a very small portion of, night, of nightshade plants that are even edible. Most of them are poisonous actually. That's so <laughs> um, the ones that are edible still produce certain compounds that can be irritating in people that already have a compromised gut lining and just aren't particularly healthy or just have certain susceptibility. So I think some genes likely make people a little bit more susceptible to nightshades. And it's probably a protective mechanism that we've developed genetically. And it wouldn't be a problem, um, as like I said, in, in super healthy people with an intact gut lining and um, you know good digestive fortitude. Um, but they contain things like saponins and glycoalkaloids, and um, those can increase gut permeability and stimulate the immune system. I find tomatoes to be one, like even if all other nightshades are okay, I find tomatoes to be one of the foods that tend to be really triggering for people. Yeah. And you can often, you can often get around that by eating them without the skins. Yeah. So peeling them before you use them in a recipe. Right. Yeah. That's how they commonly do it in Italy. Yep. <laughs> Once again, another reason to go to Italy. <laughs> Um, next category is eggs, um, which is both a common sensitivity, but also an extremely nutrient dense food. We actually talk about eggs as one of our fertility superfoods. Um, and we love eggs as long as you can tolerate them. So it is on that top eight list of allergens. Um, it's very, can be very stimulating to the immune system. What's interesting about eggs is, is kind of learning a little bit more about the mechanism behind why they're a potentially sensitive food. So eggs contain something called lysozyme. And lysozyme has the ability to kind of form complexes with other proteins and can actually transport them through the gut barrier. So Thanks, you can't... So, <laughs> so, so the lysozyme can actually um, transport other egg proteins into the gut. So you could either be reactive to the egg itself, or it mm. could just be increasing the transport of other proteins through the gut barrier and increasing sensitivity to other foods. So you could feel bad when you eat eggs um, because of the egg protein, or you could feel bad when you eat eggs because of the kind of the transport of other proteins through the gut. Mm. So um, eggs, if you tolerate them, are fabulous. If you don't, it's worth um, a trial elimination. This is definitely one of the foods that I would recommend reintroducing into your diet if you do find that you have a sensitivity and just simply getting your gut barrier back up and running and in tip-top shape, rebuilding the mucosal barrier that protects the gut lining um, can usually resolve the sensitivity to eggs unless you have crossed into IgE land, into full-blown allergy to eggs. Um, and in that case, it's a lot harder to resolve. IgE land. What a horrible place to be, huh? <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to be in IGE land. Um, and, you know, just so you know, it's, it's, you're, it's not doom and gloom. Like if you have food allergies, it is possible um, to resolve IGE allergies. It's just not as common to be able to reintroduce those yeah. foods. So uh, if you have like deathly anaphylaxis to a food, that's obviously not one that we would recommend trialing back into your diet um, oh. unless you were heavily supervised by a medical doctor. Right. And the last food, quote food, we want to talk about, um, which is another kind of tearjerker for people to have to eliminate is alcohol. 
And alcohol isn't particularly awesome for fertility anyway, um, but one of the reasons that it can be so problematic and cause sensitivities in people is that alcohol is really good at uh, increasing intestinal permeability. So mm -hmm. unraveling the integrity of that gut lining. Uh, I learned recently, actually, that alcohol can also increase the transport of endotoxin through the gut barrier. So endotoxin would be um, like bacterial byproducts. So if you have a lot of gram negative, a certain class of bacteria in your gut, um, they can produce something called lipopolysaccharide or LPS, which is an inflammatory compound. Uh, it's really notorious for causing joint pain actually in people. And alcohol. So if you if you wake up creaky and achy and just feeling inflamed after a night of drinking with your friends, like um, everybody, <laughs> yeah, it, it may not just be the alcohol that you're responding to, just because obviously alcohol is a toxin, but it actually may be the increase in the transport of LPS across the gut barrier that makes you feel so crappy the next day. So um, alcohol also has health benefits when certain types of alcohol have health benefits when consumed in moderation by a healthy person. But if you're struggling with the integrity of your gut lining and a lot of inflammatory symptoms, it is worthwhile to experiment uh, with eliminating it. And when you add it back, uh, go with moderation. And like we said, it's not particularly awesome for fertility. So we typically recommend going slightly less than moderation when you're actively trying to conceive. And then of course, if you were pregnant, we do not recommend any amount of alcohol <laughs> ever during pregnancy. Ever. There's, well, research has not been able to find any safe level of alcohol consumption that doesn't pose risk to your baby. So alcohol yeah. is a no-no during pregnancy. So uh, now that I've just been Debbie Downer and told you all the foods that you might not want to eat. <laughs> Dr. Oh, Healy's going to make it even worse and talk about, <laughs> no, just kidding. We're going to talk about specific types of elimination diets. And so um, basically the two types that we use in clinical practice combine the list of foods that we've talked about in one way or another, and we use them differently in clinical practice. So Dr. Haley, why don't you kind of go into it? What, what do we do with an elimination diet and which are the two that we like the best? Yeah. So elimination diet is what us functional medicine practitioners slash doctors will use to be able to discover what kind of foods you're sensitive to. So it really is the gold standard of figuring out your sensitivity. Now there's other tests that we can do. You may have heard of a test that we really like to do, which is uh, an MRT, uh, which will test like 170 foods and chemicals to see what your immune system is reacting to. However, the gold standard is just to remove the food and add it back in over time, except for gluten, um, and if, if you do react to it. Um, to, you know, because every person is different and the, the science just still isn't there to give us 100% accuracy on what you're sensitive to. So. Um, they, but it, we do use it as a guideline, which can be helpful. So uh, Kristen has mentioned that the minimum time frame that we recommend is an elimination for 30 days. And then depending on the severity of your symptoms, we may suggest up to 90 days. And the first one that we really like is the Whole30. So the Whole30 is actually originally, I think, she created it. Do you remember the name of the person that created the Whole30? Hartwig. Melissa. Yes. Mel Melissa Hartwig. Yeah. Good job. So she, I think she originally created it as kind of like 
a detox kind of diet. I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily meant to be like elimination diet, um, but it works really well for that because it eliminates all gluten and grains. So all grains are out, um, all beans, so legumes all together, uh, dairy, all forms of sugar, alcohol, and food additives. Now, if that sounds really hard to you, yes, it may be hard, but the cool thing is, is the Whole30 has become so extremely popular. I imagine you, you probably have heard about it. Um, it's, it's become quite a community-supported elimination diet, and so there's lots of resources out there to discover recipes. Um, there's actually, uh, it, you, you may have noticed that I didn't say eggs. So eggs is part of um, the whole 30 that you can eat. And some people are like, Oh, thank goodness. Because what the heck else am I going to eat um, for breakfast in particular? <laughs> um, but you may want to do like an eggless whole 30, just if you suspect that you might be sensitive to eggs, or if you just want to go a step further and just like really know if you're sensitive to eggs or not, there's a lot of recipes out there that, um, are eggless whole 30 recipes which can be a lifesaver. So it's only 30 days. It's I've, I've done it twice before and I've always done it with a partner. So it's fun to do it with somebody. And one thing that really helps you be successful on this diet is uh, preparing your meals ahead of time. So being really intentional on what recipes that you're going to cook for the week and um, setting aside two to four hours, like on a Sunday or a Saturday to prep all your food ahead of time. And then it actually becomes not very hard, you know, like you, yes, you go through kind of a sugar withdrawal or like a grain withdrawal <laughs> and you might not feel so great the first, um, maybe two to four days, but res uh, resoundingly. So most people say that they feel great on the diet, and usually it's because they're eliminating something that they're sensitive to. So um, this is definitely our baseline recommendation for gut healing is a whole 30. And, um, the reason why is because again, it removes most of the common culprits for gut barrier damage and inflammation. And usually we discover what it is that you're sensitive to with this type of diet. So, um, the other diet that we recommend is AIP or autoimmune protocol. So this is a stricter version of the whole 30 or like a paleo diet that eliminates all the foods from the whole 30, but it also will eliminate nuts and seeds and their oils. Um, so oils made from the nuts and seeds, seed based spices, and this one eliminates eggs and nightshades and their spices and also coffee. So there's a lot of uh, science behind this. There's some really great books that um, Kristen can mention when it comes to the autoimmune. Um, pro is it paleo diet or protocol? I mean, you can I use both. Like it's just exactly. It's just it's, it started out as autoimmune paleo um, and has kind of evolved into autoimmune protocol. So you yeah. can use either one. Yeah. So with this particular diet, they focus on adding in a variety of highly nutrient dense foods and correcting the lifestyle dysfunction that can exacerbate inflammation and immune issues. And we recommend this elimination to clients with diagnosed autoimmune conditions. If they have significant inflammatory symptoms such as skin rashes or migraines or joint pain. Um, 
joint pain is another one. And also if they have severe gut dysfunction. So if they're dealing with um, chronic bloating, uh, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, et cetera. Um, and then also we'll sometimes recommend it for clients with endometriosis because uh, if you heard us talk about it before, endometriosis is an inflammatory condition that is now being linked highly to the um, gut lining and to the microbiome. So Kristen can give us a little uh, more background on the AIP. I've actually never fully done the AIP myself, um, but she's been on it for, <laughs> for a while and is very well versed on it. So maybe you can just give us a quick little snippet of your experience. Yeah. Um, AIP has been really great for me. I find that, you know, I have some confounding issues and some additional immune system reactions. At some point, I promise I will share the full details of that on the podcast um, when I feel like we have a better handle on it, I think. So kind of what I'm dealing with is more of like a histamine intolerance. And so we think we may have identified the root cause of that, but it does make it difficult to try to manage symptoms with diet alone. So for a really long time, um, I would just kind of, I basically would just make my diet smaller and smaller and smaller. And the list of foods I could tolerate got tinier and tinier and it got really frustrating. But AIP has been a great baseline diet for me to eat because it limits the amount of immune reactivity that I have to foods coming in. And so I can handle other stressors and health issues that I'm dealing with a lot better. So um, I do have diagnosed Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, it has been helpful for keeping my thyroid symptoms under control. I'm actually not on medication currently. I'm managing with a glandular. However, caveat, I am not actively trying to conceive. If you are and you have thyroid issues, opt for medication. Um, that is the safest way to make sure that your baby um, does not suffer any consequences from low thyroid hormone. So um, it's been great for me to be able to control my thyroid issues, um, to control other inflammatory symptoms. Um, I have symptoms of Raynaud's, which basically affects circulation um, to my hands and feet. And I do suffer with, or used to suffer with a lot of joint pain and um, AIP helps me keep that under control. So at its root, AIP is a gut healing diet. And it's not just about elimination. You know, Whole30 is a little bit more just about eliminating potentially offending foods. AIP is a little bit more about, yes, eliminating offending foods, but you can't stop there. You know, you really have to add in nutrient-dense healing foods because people who yeah. suffer from inflammatory symptoms and autoimmune conditions tend to be nutrient deficient. They tend to be protein deficient. They tend to just need a lot more of everything to heal and get their bodies back on track. And this is great for fertility because of the nutrient density of the diet. You know, you would think with something that eliminates so many different foods that it would be short on nutrients. But if you're really doing this protocol properly, you're actually going to be eating a more nutrient dense diet than most other dietary approaches out there. And so it is going to ask you to incorporate things like organ meats into your diet. Those are basically like nature's multivitamin. And that doesn't mean that you have to go out there and like eat an entire, you know, chicken liver raw, <laughs> not raw, like cooked with salt oh or whatever, God. like plain. That was a horrible meant, image. Thank you, Griffin. <laughs> I meant plain, not raw. Um, but it is going to ask you to start incorporating some of those really nutrient dense foods, um, bone broth, if you're tolerating that well, to help you heal your gut lining, fermented foods, if you're tolerating those well, um, and a histamine intolerance situation. That's, that was what was really hard for me at the beginning of all this is like, oh, none of these healing foods are working for me. Like I'm reacting to all these things that are supposed to make me better. That probably won't be you. So don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> That's like reserved for, for us yeah. special Kristen cases. 
extreme example. Yes. Well, and I keep, I keep pointing that out because I don't want people to think that this is like normal right, right. <laughs> to have to go through. But, you know, ultimately my experience on AIP has been very positive. Um, I have been able to reintroduce a couple of foods and do just fine. I would say that my diet at this point is um, kind of loosely AIP. There are certain things that I do just fine with. Um, the majority of foods like nightshades are a no-go. I cannot, cannot eat nightshades. I find, you know, the occasional experience with eggs seems to be okay, but that can go bad really quickly. But yeah, ultimately this is this is kind of my gold standard for clients with immune dysfunction. I'm actually trained as a certified AIP coach. I went through um, training in specifically how to implement this diet with clients to really get the full spectrum of what should be happening here. So when we're talking about eliminations, nutrient-dense foods, lifestyle dysfunction, we're talking about stress management, exercise, which can be really hard for people with autoimmune and inflammatory mm -hmm. conditions, um, you know, just connect making sure that you have a network that you're you know interacting with nature and just yeah. all the things well, so thank you so much for telling yeah. us your your health journey that continues on and on we're glad that she's starting on and on thanks <laughs> <laughs> no she's uh it's really great that how how much you've learned and how far you've come so uh, we just want to get wrap this episode up. Thanks so much for sticking with us uh, with just telling you a little bit more about food sensitivity testing. So I mentioned it earlier um, that it's not the, you know, the one test that's just going to give you all the answers. However, it can be really helpful in giving us a guideline on where to start, especially if there's some foods that you might be sensitive to that you would have never thought of, right? So there are some foods like um, strawberries or, you know, like, I don't know, caffeine. I guess caffeine's a bad example, but <laughs> if you have other examples, um, that's broccoli, you beets, you know, oh, things that, there you go. yeah. Exactly. So um, it can't catch all the foods, um, but again, that, that's why testing can be very helpful. And um, one of the tests that we really like to use is the uh, MRT, like we talked about, and that stands for Mediator Release Test. And basically it's a blood draw and they are testing to see what your white blood cells reactions are to certain food proteins. And if there's a low reaction, a medium reaction, or a high reaction, and then you get this beautiful report to show um, what, what your white blood cells are, are doing basically. And then we combine that with our uh, gut um, test, our stool test, which is the GI map. And the GI map is going to, the reason why we use it is because it's the best available test on the market to evaluate gut health. And it's going to identify pathogenic bacteria, parasites, yeast, viruses, fungi, if anything is living in you that shouldn't be. Um, it measures levels of beneficial bacteria. If it's low or if it's too high, you can have too much. Um, it also assesses for functional digestive markers like stomach acid, enzymes, liver and gallbladder output, so how well you're digesting your food. It also measures immune and inflammatory markers. So are you leaning more towards a 
uh, inflammatory bowel disease kind of picture? Or do you have like where your immune system is more on the low grade where it's not necessarily working as well on the opposite end? And then there's um, also the fact that it's going to help us identify other underlying causes for health symptoms and fertility issues. And so that's why we really recommend the stool test, even though it may not seem um, like a logical first step when you're struggling to conceive, but it is. And you can actually learn more about why we recommend the stool test. Um, we have an awesome blog article written on that um, that Kristen explains more. So we'll link to that in our podcast um, description. And I already talked about the MRT test. And so if you guys are interested at all, oh, Kristen's going to tell us a little bit more about something. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, well, I just wanted to talk about why it's so important to do these tests together. And so I will say that I don't ever recommend doing a food sensitivity test without a stool test. And the reason for that is because I kind of explained to you guys what happened to me where I was just chasing down sensitivity after sensitivity and my diet just kept getting smaller and smaller and I just kept eliminating and eliminating. And the reason that I was doing that is because I wasn't addressing the root cause of the food sensitivity, which was gut dysfunction. And right. I ended up having like parasitic infections that I had no idea were in there and some other bacterial uh, dysbiosis markers. And so the whole point is that, yes, a protocol that eliminates food sensitivities or an elimination diet can be restrictive, but it's temporary. And if you do it at the same time as you investigate and address gut health, you can get amazing results in a short period mm -hmm. of time, as opposed yeah. to just chasing down food sensitivities, you eliminate those, you don't fix the underlying dysfunction, and then you can just start forming new food sensitivities, even though you've just eliminated a bunch from your diet. So yeah. I just kind of wanted to mention that. Yeah, <laughs> but that's the reason why we use these tests together and why we recommend them together and why it's not a great idea to just test for food sensitivities without doing the underlying healing work. So that's all. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I think another potential option is that we'll make available on uh, potentially the website or if you book a 20 minute call with us is doing at least the stool test mm -hmm. and, um, and then doing either a whole 30 or a AIP elimination diet too. That, mm -hmm. that could be another option. You don't have to do the MRT. Um, but a lot of people like the idea of doing MRT because again, like Kristen was saying, it's just, a faster course to recovery um, versus like a little bit more guesswork if you're doing the elimination. But the elimination, oh, excuse me, the elimination diet is um, works really well for a lot of people. It really does. So um, if you do a 20 minute call with us, we can kind of get an idea of what would be best for you in your particular situation too. Yep. Cool. I think All we're right. done. I think we are. I think we covered all the things. Um, so like we've mentioned several times, we would love to speak to you about your specific situation. You can absolutely book a 20 minute consult with us just to talk about that. Um, we'll talk to you about testing options. You can also just like come to us and tell us what's going on with you and, and have us kind of give you some recommendations about what next steps would be. I mean, you don't necessarily have to choose to work with us. You can, no, um, yeah, if you want our help, but we are also happy to just kind of hear a little bit more about what's going on with you and 
kind of give you a nudge in the right direction based on what you're telling us your concerns are. So whether or not that's moving forward with doing some functional testing with us, going back to your doctor for some, you know, tests that you can easily get with your primary care physician, whether it might be even exploring some conventional testing options, depending on how long you've been trying. Mm -hmm. So we can give you a lot of different advice in different areas. So, um, and we love to, you know, meet people that are listening to the podcast and enjoying the content. So, um, yeah. yeah schedule with us and get to know us a little bit. We'll get to know you and make some recommendations to help you on your fertility journey. Um, Also keep in mind that that brand new preconception preparation course, we haven't named it yet, so we're working on that. Um, (laughs) But that is going to be available soon. And um, we would love to see you on our email list so that you can be one of the first to hear about that and um, get access to some special early bird pricing when it comes out. So that course is going to go over a lot of different things, many things that we've discussed on the podcast in the past, but really kind of holding your hand through it, you know, sharing our favorite resources for, you know, working on eliminating toxins from your routine, how to talk to your doctor about preconception care, what tests you need, um, really in depth about diet, which surprisingly, we haven't really done a start to finish, like this is what your fertility diet should look like um, episode on the podcast. So this is some of this is information that we've never discussed before on the podcast. So lots and lots of cool things in that course. And we cannot wait to have that available for you. So we hope to see on the list so we can get you priority notification. Right. And next week we are going to have Lauren Maniker on our podcast. And she is in a registered dietitian who lives over in South Carolina, right? And I think so. she, yeah, she has uh, many years of experience in working in the nutrition field. And she recently wrote a book on male fertility or male sperm health. And so we did an interview with her. And so next episode is going to be all about male fertility, which we haven't done in, in quite a little it, right? So that's a really awesome episode. So stay tuned for that. And then if you want to stay in touch, please head over to Instagram and follow us at tinyfeet.co and say hi.